evidence and answers. Darwin's theory is taught as the only viable explanation for the origin and diversity of life. Although this theory is the only theory taught in science, does Darwin's theory have the evidential support to firmly establish its case as the most convincing theory of origins? You may be surprised to find out the evidence may not be so convincing. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zuckeran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on our show, Pat and his guest, Dr. Reginald Sang, one of the top neonatologist doctors in the world, will discuss the facts on Darwin's theory. Here with part one is our host, Pat. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the issues of today. Well, today we're talking about faith and science, but more specifically faith in the area of the medical sciences. And our guest today is one of the top neonatologist doctors in the United States, and he is recognized internationally as one of the top neonatologist doctors in the world. In fact, those of you in this area, nurses and doctors probably read many of his articles and textbooks there in this area. And our guest is Dr. Reginald Tsang. He served as a professor at the University of Cincinnati in pediatrics, obstetrics, and gynecology. And he has won several awards in the medical field for his work. Dr. Tsang has been a visiting professor not only at the University of Cincinnati, but in over a hundred cities and in over 40 countries around the world. He has published over 400 papers and his book reviews on the subjects of calcium and vitamin D metabolism as well as diabetes in pregnancy. He's one of the most recognized doctors in this arena. So, Dr. Tsang, welcome to Evidence and Answers. I'm pleased to be here. Thank you. Well, explain to us just briefly, Dr. Tsang, you're in the area of the medical field. Tell us a little bit of your story of how you as a medical doctor came to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, actually, I knew that I was going to be a doctor at age seven. My family is just full of doctors. I'm the fourth generation, really, because the first generation was kind of Chinese herbal medicine, and the next one was a missionary-trained doctor, and the next one was a university, and me. So all four generations, we uh, have this strong bent towards uh, medicine. So at age seven, I somehow decided that, yes, I'm going to be a doctor also. But I also was very fascinated with science and things like that. So from an early age, I was always interested in scientific kinds of things. But since we were surrounded by doctors in the family and everything, I read a lot about medicine and uh, science and everything and followed the sort of literature here and there. Uh, so by the time I got into medical school, I was uh, really geared to go in a full way. So and soon after that, I uh, I went specifically into research in uh, pediatrics, and especially in newborn pediatrics. We called it neonatology. At the time, we were sort of like the forerunners of this discipline. It was a new field, and uh, we were the first batch. We were the first ones who had to take the exam, and uh, it was a funny thing since we gave exams to ourselves, basically, and then awarded ourselves the, the brand as uh, neonatologists, we call them. So by then, I had developed a keen interest in um, nutrition, specifically calcium, vitamin D, 
and sort of that sort of thing, and metabolism like diabetes. So I focused my attention on science and did a lot of research, read a lot, wrote a lot, published a lot, spoke a lot, and that sort of thing. So I was fully an academic kind of a person. I had a lot of contact with missionary doctors uh, throughout the years because my family was always entertaining missionary doctors, especially doctors uh, involved in leprosy and stuff like that. So I was keenly interested in in medical mission also. I came to Jesus as a teenager. Well, you could even say I was I came to the Lord even before that, uh, as a kid growing up, myself, as it were, until age 15 when I decided that for sure I have to step forward and acknowledge the God that I've always believed. I thought that you know, it was a very sensible thing to have a God and to uh, that a God created the world and created all the things we see and science and medicine. So it wasn't uh, that difficult for me to believe in him, frankly, because everything so, was so orderly, in my view, in science. And that became one of the guiding factors in my scientific careers, career also. And then I think that what happened uh, was that I began to uh, work with people that were similarly minded. And so we even started a church in Cincinnati 51 years ago, actually. So, and that's grown uh, to about 500 people now. So we're very actively involved in that too. Now, in your education, especially in the sciences there, it's interesting because that's when we started getting into the sciences is when a lot of us started doubting the existence of God and the truth of Christianity and that there was an intelligent creator. In the scientific arena, we're surrounded mostly by professors and colleagues who teach that Darwin's theory of evolution explains the origin and the diversity of life. I assume that's the environment you are in as you are preparing to be in the science field and in the medical field. Sort of, except that it was kind of a thing that was more like an accepted dogma that was sort of pervasive in the system. But nobody actually got was saying things like, oh, we came from apes. I barely heard anybody saying that. It was implicit that we came from apes, but it seemed like they were actually avoiding that issue, <laughs> to my surprise, as it were, because it's like, well, what about this origin thing? I was asking the questions, and frankly, nobody had a good answer, frankly. So I became uh, skeptical really early on, because actually, I think uh, even the scientists realized that there was something fishy about that angle. They were generally sort of saying, oh, of course, Darwin is correct. Of course, we evolved somehow. But the somehow was, was just a somehow. And it wasn't science. It was like, yeah, somehow, somehow we, we came to where we are. So we must have evolved. Uh, otherwise, how else would we have come here? Since we cannot talk about God, I guess, uh, that's the only other default position. So it was more like a default kind of argument. So I found it kind of strange as I was growing up. I, I began to doubt things about God too, of course, because you know books basically refute, say that there is no mention of God and you shouldn't mention God. We should only study science, quote unquote, and obviously we evolved. And so it was like something was taboo. You couldn't actually challenge it in a sense. But I began to challenge it myself as I was reading. It was like, wait, the books say that we came from apes, but nobody actually kind of lives life as if they came from apes, actually. And certainly, I mean, if you were seeing patients, which I began to see soon after that, I would never broach the subject with my patients that, oh, you came from apes. I mean, it's just not polite. Uh, <laughs> it's like the textbooks say one thing, but in real life, we're actually living a different life. And I was a 
doctor, medical doctor by instinct and by professional training. So I wasn't a lab-bound scientist, where basically if you stay in the lab and you do your your biology and experiments like that, but I'm a clinician. So I see humans, and I see the problems in humans. And I see that, for example, we can talk about later, but this issue of mutations is a, it's a big thing for me. It's like, wait, mutations are not good. I'm a doctor. Mutations are awful. You know, so it began to frame my thinking very quickly. Like, this is strange. There's a whole discipline talking about evolution and how we must have come from, from nothing and that sort of thing. And then there's the reality of life with humans and patients. And here I might interject the issue of so-called macro and micro evolution. Darwinian evolution includes both. And frankly, I'm okay with Darwinian. Might things change? They don't necessarily change for the better, but they kind of change here and there, change here and there. And there are lots of little mutations that are doing that. But if you're talking about the medical mutations or the big changes that we need to go from apes to humans and that sort of thing, oh, that's a different matter altogether. Unfortunately, in most of the people's conversation around this point, they conflate the two. They mix the two together as if they're the same. They're not the same. There's huge differences between so-called macro and microevolution. Microevolution is kind of occurring everywhere. So you ask me, do I believe in evolution? I said, which kind? So I say, ah, it's okay, sure, microevolution is just change. This is another name for change, not a big thing. But if you're talking about apes to humans, wait, I'm not talking about that. And uh, I don't see the evidence for that. In fact, there's a lot of stuff against that. So that's where I sort of gathered my brains together as we went through school and started reading stuff. It's like, hmm, this is strange. Textbooks and humans are different somehow. Yes, you know, there's a clear distinction that you made there that everyone needs to understand, the difference between micro and macro evolution. Micro evolution, we would all agree with. This is changes within a species, you know, different types of dogs. That's a form of micro evolution. Different types of birds, that's a type of micro evolution. Now, macro evolution is what Darwin's theory has to prove. You can develop new body parts, new organs to create something new. And you stated you didn't see the evidence that through the natural process we could create macro evolutionary change. Explain that a little bit. Okay, so this is where, you know, people make the jump. Microevolution occurs, so macro must occur. And they would use arguments kind of like, oh, you see the changes here? So the finch uh, beak and that sort of thing. Uh, they would give the evidence for there. Same breath, they would say, oh, that sort of proves it. And well, huh? I said, how did you prove that uh, <laughs> we became from apes? So, and of course, you look at it, uh, it looks like it's different stages of this and that, and they look like they're going from one to another. They all look like this change, but looking is not the same as what's basically inside their system, like their DNA. The DNA sort of evolution from, let's say, apes to humans, is non-existent. There's no data on that at all. So you can imagine things, but there's nothing there. And by the way, all this kind of stuff is actually historic. So it's in the past. Whatever we're doing with it, we're kind of imagining that it could happen like that way. But there's no way to show that it does. And it, you know, there's no proof at all that anything evolved from species to another species and that sort of thing. So 
sort of fails. And of course, there are many books now that um, basically go into extreme detail about the DNA changes that are necessary uh, to do that, and there's no data for that. So I think that uh, that's a crux of it, I think. There's no evidence for that at all. I could say that when I was going to medical school and all that, that was 50, 60 years ago. I mean, our understanding of human biology is very limited. And uh, we basically were at a stage when we said, okay, the cell is, there's a nucleus there, there's a cytoplasm there, there's a cellular membrane, and there's some other things uh, hanging around here. We don't know what they're doing. Kind of thing. It's practically at that level. So it's amazing that in 50, 60 years, I mean, now we know that uh, just the description of a cell, one cell, one description of a cell is not one description. It's like a huge number of formulas and diagrams and you can plaster, you know, the walls of uh, your museum from wall to wall to wall to wall to wall to wall, and you're still not finished with the dimensions of just one cell, just one little cell. We used to even sim- call it simple cell. So to feel that Darwin somehow was able to master all of this and be sort of the, I don't know, the god of it all, as it were, the one that recognizes the whole story of evolution from the very primitive experiments that he did with no knowledge of today's uh, physiology, you know, biochemistry, you know, molecular biology, DNA, uh, everything. I mean, just nothing of that uh, nature. Even just a few decades ago, we knew so little about it. And so I think we have to have a good degree of humility that so much of biology we don't know a thing about, frankly. 50 years later, we'll look back and say, wow, that was primitive. Is that what they believed? You know, that sort of thing. You know, and I use that simple analogy to illustrate uh, to people who are sort of simple-minded who think, oh, you know, the cell just evolved. Well, wait a minute. The cell is like a whole city. I like to use the description of Shanghai. It could be Honolulu. It could be Manila. It could be, you know, any city, frankly. But, you know, you don't form a city piece by piece in that sense because like, um, like a cell, you know, you have to have everything together at the word go. So all the components of the cell the roads, the traffic lights, the traffic cops, the firemen, all the communication system, the phone wires, everything has to be in place at the same time and all coordinated to make it work. One part of it that, that doesn't work, the whole system will fail, it will just flop. So it's not like, you know, you could just build a little bit at a time, evolve a little bit at a time, let's evolve this part, evolve that part. No way, you have to quote unquote evolve the entire cell at one go. So that's already mind-boggling. Nobody can imagine even anything close to how it could work. So I think that as scientists have come to the conclusion, our job is mostly to explain how, how it works. So if you cannot explain to me how it happens, how it actually is all put together, then we basically haven't solved the problem. You're just telling me a story. Well, you know, you might have shocked a lot of people when you're saying there that really you didn't find evidence when you study the scientific journals and even Darwin's writing for his theory, you know, specifically macroevolution. But we're taught in school, you know, that it's like an airtight theory, that there's tons of evidence there, but that you're saying it's not. Well, it's not because it's not there, number one, but number two, it's a 
funny hierarchy of science. When a scientist makes a discovery, it gets transmitted downstream, as it were. So even today, a lot of times, scientific discovery takes years and years and years for it to quote unquote trickle down to the masses, as it were. So even if they actually change everything at the top of the the pole, as it were, it takes a while to trickle down to the people that, hey, there's a fault here. And they're not uh, about to confess it as yet because they have to fight it out. So it might take them decades and decades to fight it out. And then, oh, yeah, there's a problem here. And then it gets transmitted to the professor level who's teaching, to the professor who's teaching to the college student who's going to be a, a teacher. And the teacher will then teach it to his kids and that sort of thing. And there's actually quite a lag. You think that in today's world, the things will go from A to Z quickly, but not really, because it's actually not the exact information. It's the series or the framework that you frame it. So if you have to have consensus, it has to move in the top ranks there, as it were, and then people start having a bit of a consensus and that sort of thing, and then uh, they will trickle down. So for the moment, I think what's happening is that a lot of the teachers are just teaching sort of outmoded theories that they have had given to them when they were in college by some professor who wasn't thinking. So not every professor thinks about evolution, by the way. They might be teaching evolution, but they haven't actually thought about it in any careful way. So they're just mouthing it, transmitting whatever they, they have received themselves. So I think it's a little bit of that. And people have to take it with a large grain of salt, you know, because generally they generalize a lot of things. So because Darwin's ingrained in the system, it's going to take a long time before Darwin's uh, thinking is actually more clarified. So yes, we can look at Darwin's uh, book, and I think that would help. Frankly, not very many of you have actually read the book. Go read the book, and you'll see that it's pretty primitive, actually. And the Darwin's book is nothing of the sort that we are using today, of course. So everybody has interpreted it from Darwin. It's like reading the tea leaves. Mm. It must mean this kind of thing. Wait a minute. No, he didn't say that. He didn't even discover that. And he didn't know what a cell was either, frankly. Uh, certainly not a DNA. So how could he have dreamed of evolutionary sort of morphing from, you know, apes to humans. Yes. And one of the interesting perspectives you bring, I like to say there's division in science. There's the practical sciences and something I call the theoretical sciences. And the theoretical science are the guys in the lab. I mean, they can come up with all kinds of theories and all kinds of ideas. But those in the practical sciences, like you folks in the medical field, actually apply the sciences and know that in reality, a lot of these theories out there are just that. They're theories. They wouldn't work in the real world. And I think you come from a good, you know, a unique perspective because you're in both. You know, you're exposed to the theoretical sciences as well as you work in the medical field in the practical sciences and that's something you brought up uh, I think when you said you speak to patients you never tell them well you know this is because we're descended from apes or something like that so in the theoretical science you can come up with all kinds of theories but in the practical sciences you realize well some of these theories really don't have any any legs well let me give you an example I'm a newborn thousands of babies and deliveries and stuff like that so I have had always the privilege of walking into the mother and congratulating the mother and everything, right? So if mutations are such a wonderful thing that happens to us, 
Imagine my going into the mother's labor room and uh, just announcing my congratulations. Congratulations, um, ma'am. You have a wonderful mutation. I mean, it would be ridiculous, right? I mean, nobody in their right mind would think that a mutation is wonderful in newborn care. I mean, in fact, if anybody said that, that, oh, there's a baby with a mutation down the hall, we would like, oh, uh, what do we say to the mother? You know that sort of thing? We would be very, very upset ourselves and very, very uncomfortable about any time this word comes out. So in the practical world, a mutation for a clinical doctor is not the same as some lab theorist working from a computer. You could imagine all these good mutations as they want to say, but in real life, mutations, major mutations, nearly always spell disaster for the baby or at least something really a problem and nothing that you want to be happy about, frankly. So in clinical medicine, we know that mutations are not good. I was uh, just amused when I looked at a lot of the reports about cancer, for example, and you look at the reports for cancer, and the reports for cancer would list what? List all the mutations that have happened that caused the cancer or were instrumental in causing the cancer. So we all know mutations are just terrible for our life. Everything you get uh, when you go to see the doctor and he says you have hypertension, you can blame it on your mutation. You're not going to blame it on a good mutation. <laughs> for example, I would say, let's say you're, you're smart and you have a very smart IQ. Has anybody told you that, hey, you're really smart. It must be your good mutation. No way. That's not, not what practical people think about. And they know that it's not true. You don't mutate to something good. You always mutate to something bad when I'm talking about major mutations. All the other micro ones, the little changes here and there, and that's just a variation. But if we're talking about a real mutation, beware of mutations, of course, is our motto. Yes, you state in your book, Coffee Talk with Dr. Reggie here, you state that even a slight mutation in the complex DNA code that we have, even just a slight mutation there could spell disaster for a child. Ex expound on that a little bit for us. Well, the whole system is so intricate. It's so beautifully laid out. Everything is there for kind of a reason, as it were. And so you just do a little bit of flick and a little damage here. One amino acid uh, set, as it were, just suddenly goes up the whole system. I like to use the example of a chandelier that's beautiful. I mean, every little grass there is so beautiful. And you say, okay, I'll just use a rock and I'll, a stone and I'll just knock off one of them, one of the crystals, and it'll make it better. Of course not. It just doesn't work that way. You know, it's always going to damage a beautifully sophisticatedly put together system. And that's what the DNA is all about. Everywhere in the body, it's really well laid out. It makes sense. It's there for a reason. It's there to really produce a very efficient system, a very well-oiled system. And now you kick away one of the components of it. Guess what? It's not going to work as well. So that's the whole fault of this whole system, to imagine that somehow kicking down one little cog in the wheel will improve the system is pure imagination. Yes. Now, 
That has tremendous implication for Darwin's theory of evolution, this whole idea of mutations. Explain to us the tremendous implications it would have for Darwin's theory. Yeah, because in order for a species to jump species to another one, you would have to have a lot of major mutations because there's such a huge difference between species. So whenever you are thinking about how to do that, it boggles your mind. You cannot actually fathom how it could work because every time you put a monkey wrench into one of the systems, the whole system goes kaput or makes it worse. So how are you going to have any improvements when you need some kind of a major mutation to make that jump? We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 4830586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. That's honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckran. Yeah.